Well, especially on a day like today, when the roads are anything but perfect, we're always having to look around when we're driving. I'm thinking about uh, trying to do a lane change, even on a two-lane road. If you're just looking forward, it can be very, very, very bad. As my, somehow I still remember my uh, driver's ed teacher going, signal mirror and head check. Tick, tick, look behind you, look around you. Always having your head on a swivel, as we sometimes call it. I don't mean so much a uh, hardware upgrade on our neck, although maybe sometimes that would be a good thing. But we're always aware of what's around us. We're, you know, in just the idea of keeping safe as human beings, practicing situational awareness, knowing what's going on around, 360-degree awareness. I saw, as I said, this book of Deuteronomy is... like a series of Moses' sermons near the tail end of his life, as he's got these last words that he's going to be able to pass on to his people before um, he gets called home. And there's a place where he describes, let's call it 360-degree faith. Faith that is not just what's right in front of you or what's right next to you, but all around you, 24-7, 365. Not, again, not in a look around, you know, like I'm paranoid, making sure of of knowing what's all around me. But in a way that leads to real, abundant life. Now I know, as I said, starting off worship, can this idea really come out of a sermon? Or even more challenging, maybe that's challenging enough, Can real abundant life come from a part of the Bible that is known as the law? I mean, I I just look at a bookshelf of law books, and I'm like, man, that just looks boring just from the spines of it. How can something, how can material like that contain real life? Now, I, I admit, it takes a touch of looking, and maybe not just glancing over it in, in, um, Kind of a first glance and, oh, I know what all that says. But check it out. Now, a lot of what you're going to hear here in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, it's going to be very, very similar to what I read in Deuteronomy 11. So I had to actually check myself. I'm like, wait, am I reading the right passage or did I mess this up? But I got it right. Maybe there's something valuable in the repetition of some of these ideas. So hear what Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy 6. This is verses 1 through 9. This is the part that's in your bulletins. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances, that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land you are about to cross into and occupy. He's right there at the river. It just, it's um, Joshua that's going to get to actually take him over the river into the promised land. So that you and your children and your children's children May fear the Lord your God all the days of your life, and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, so that you may multiply greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, 
the Lord alone. <clears throat> you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. And talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I get it. Opening up with verse 1, talking about this is the commandment and the statutes and the ordinances. How in the world is he going to keep us awake when it starts like that? Let alone find something that has joy to it, that has life in it. Well, this is a passage that is often, uh, it's like the Jewish version of the Lord's Prayer. Or the Apostles' Creed. Um, it, it's called the Shema. Hebrew word. I promise there won't be a test. But it's a transliteration of, you know, the, if you took one letter and basically replaced it with, um, for the word here. H-E-A-R. As you see in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, if the Jews memorized one verse... And they memorized big sections of scripture. I mean, you think Sarah being able to memorize a verse or five or ten is impressive. They were memorizing books. If they would have memorized, if they'd have only been able to do one verse, this would have been it. So let me hang on to this verse for a little bit. And then I'll, I'll explore how life actually comes out of the statutes and the ordinances and all that kind of part. All right. Hear, O Israel. The start of verse 4. The Shema. The Shema, it's, the Shema is really contained in that, that one verse. It's the eloquent, um, polite way of saying, Yo! Listen up, people! I'm about to drop some serious knowledge here, so wake up! I don't know why the Yiddish started coming out in me. I, I don't know Yiddish from anything, but. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The, the Lord alone. Maybe Moses had, a, had some Yiddish Brooklyn to him. I don't know, maybe. But Moses, as I've been saying, he's at the end of his life here. He, he's on his, um, his final act. And he's, he's brought the people through the wilderness for about 40 years after they had exited Egypt. You know, let my people go in that big sermon. But unlike the Babylonian exile that we were talking about last week, where um, uh, the, the king of Persia said, all right, we're, gonna, we're freeing you from uh, the tyranny of Babylon, and after 80 years, we're finally letting you go back home. Well, they had been in the wilderness for about 40 years, considered a generation in that time. So there were people there hearing this sermon at the edge of the river, about to cross into the promised land, that remembered what Egypt was like. You know, as opposed to um, those who, you know, two, two generations separate, that's like, I don't even remember what Israel was like, because all they knew was Babylon. 
So they remembered polytheistic, a god for every street corner, Egypt. Poly being the, the word for many, theistic being God, so many gods. Um, in a, an Egyptian culture where monotheistic, mono being one, theistic being God, one God, didn't necessarily go over so well. And the claim that there is one God in a culture that believes in many gods is a pretty big deal. Especially when you're given that the way this is playing out is um, the two are mutually exclusive. So just by the nature of saying there is one and only one God, it's saying that those who believe in many gods are wrong. Well, it's kind of a universal thing that, well, people don't like to be told they're wrong. and Certainly, people back in Egypt who were treating these people as slaves didn't like slaves telling them they were wrong. Now, you may think, okay, this sounds great. This is all great for, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago, whatever. What does this have to do with today? I mean, we don't deal with this sort of stuff today. We don't have a... A, um, an ism, a faith system that's kind of a big deal in the West, if you will, that builds its foundation on many gods. Or do we? Now, I'm not referring to uh, Hinduism or another kind of ism in that sense that traditionally worships many gods, but think about this. Have you ever heard the phrase, God wouldn't do that? Or, my God's not like that. Or, I don't believe in a God who works that way. Maybe you kind of catch some of the uh, setup words that I'm, I use there. Um, my, 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 I don't believe, you know, I don't think. Where do people get that? I mean, I'm guessing anytime somebody says, my God or God, or, you know, using that, that concept of, a, of a, a higher being to kind of universalize the idea, that they're, they're getting their ideas of what God is like from somewhere. And if you ask a hundred different people, you might get 50 different sources. But I'm guessing... A lot of people are going, my God doesn't do that, or I don't believe in a God who thinks this way. They're probably not getting it from the Christian Bible. Wherever it is they are getting it from, I'm guessing it's not coming from here. So all of a sudden, you've got, you start playing this out, you've got Dave's version of God, and you've got Larry's version of God, and Phyllis's God and Rachel's God and Candy's God and all cherry picking the parts of God that they like and creating their own version, their own recipe of who God is. And all of a sudden, soon enough, you've got seven billion gods. Hello, Polly. But if Deuteronomy 6.4 is really true. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. 
and there's one God, then we don't get to pick the traits and the truths and, yes, the statutes and the ordinance that we like and nuke the rest. Because if we got to do that, then we're the ones creating the God. And that, that's not, whatever that is, that's not the God that comes out, that reveals God's self in the Christian Bible. Who God is, or what God is, or how God works, has to come from a source outside of our own list of desires. Outside our own list of, this is what my wish list for God was like. I mean, bring this kind of out of the realms of the ivory towers for a bit. Um, you pass through my office, you know the, the wall behind my monitors is all filled with um, pictures, primarily of, of our family. Um, my absolutely gorgeous bride and my three totally awesome kids. She's going to be really glad she's sitting in the back here for this section of this. Now let's say I'm here doing my thing, and I'm looking at these pictures all day long. And I'm like, wow, my bride is gorgeous. And I go home, and the kids are off, you know, headphones on, tablets going, and all that sort of stuff. And I just whisper in, in Rich's ears, I love you so much. Your blonde hair is just gorgeous, and your blue eyes, I just want to, like pools, I just want to swim in. And she looks at me, and kind of pushes me off, like, what exactly were you smoking at church today? Because my hair's not blonde and my eyes ain't blue. Who are you thinking about here? Now, I don't have a comfy enough couch in the house to test this idea out. But let me play this out for just a little bit, just to, just to carry the point of, let's say, all right, I kind of look back at Rach with dreamy eyes or whatever, and I'm like, well, get some hair dye and some contacts. Because I want the blonde and the blue. I, you guys are going to be seeing us on the nightly news. <laughs> you guys are going to see us on the, on the news. Wife Maul's stupid husband for being an idiot. And it would be very true. And maybe I'd get away with just the frying pan, but it wouldn't be pretty. Tim Keller says, very well, I promise, Rach, that's the end of the embarrassed, my awesome bride-ness um, today. Tim Keller says, it's so well. He says, the God your heart most desperately needs is the God your heart didn't create. Why? I mean, it might sound awesome to be able to create our own God, and, and I like some of this and a little bit of that, and let's, let's leave the statutes and the ordinances aside and all that sort of stuff. But let's play it out. Let's say we have our own version of God, our own creation that our desires and our wish list is put together, like a, a Lego God or something like that. What happens when life goes south? If my, dare I say it, if my feelings, my desires created this God, now all of a sudden I'm having a day that for some reason I feel worthless. 
I feel unloved. Well, how is that God going to tell me, no, you are loved. You are valuable. You are worth something. Oh, my feelings are going to tell my feelings they're wrong? How does, how does that work? Let's say for whatever reason life is going on and for, you know, I do something stupid and I feel guilty. Well, how is a God that I created going to offer me pardon? The good thing is, all of this passage, all these nine verses that I read here, these uh, eight verses that I read earlier on in the service, they show a picture of a God. They, they speak about a God we didn't create. The God, as Keller says, is the, heart, the, the God our heart most desperately needs. Now let's say, okay, God gives um, XYZ statute or law or ordinance or thou shalt or thou shalt not. And just as human beings, our default ends up being to rebel. Say, no, I'd rather do it my way. Because I know better than you, God. Well, and what's that? That's essentially creating our own God again. I think the Bible calls that kind of thing idolatry, which is usually a bit frowned upon when it comes to all of Scripture. But in God's wisdom, which far surpasses ours, God says, do it this way so that it may go well with you. Um, some of the more specific ways. Hear, therefore, O Israel. There's our Shema. Observe them, these laws, these ordinances. Observe them diligently so it may go well with you. So you may multiply greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Here's the thing. And this is where some of the hope and the joy starts to come into even this unique angle that, that Moses is taking to get us there. Is that the God of reality, the God of, that the Shema is referring to, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, not the God we create or cherry pick or, or wish it were, the God of reality is so much bigger than we could possibly create on our own. Ken and I were talking the other day um, about J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small. If we were to create our own God, great as it would be in our estimation, it's so much smaller than what the God of reality really is. So, Let's see what some of those subsequent verses do to, to lead to abundant life. I'm going to go through, um, I think this is verses 5 through 7. Alright, I get this starts off a little ordinancey, but you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. And talk about them when you are at home, and when you are away, when you lie down, and when you rise. But catch some of those phrases that Moses talks about here. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus says similar when he gives the, um, the greatest commandment. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22, I believe. But here's the thing, and the reason I focus on those is faith isn't just an all-your-might thing. It's not just an all-your-mind thing, to use Jesus' add-on, if you will, from the, from the gospel. To the exclusion of the other faculties that God has given us. God has given us a mind, a soul, a heart, um, a might. So what if we could experience our faith using all of those? Loving God with all of those. Rather than just one part. It's like the idea, again, of driving. That driving is more than just what's in your one lane. Right there in front of you. Or maybe if you have a little bit of situational awareness, what's there and behind you. But it's what's in front of you. It's what's on the side. It's what's at your angles. It's what's in your blind spots. We're aware of all of that. In the same way that God gives us all these faculties to experience Him and worship Him. Mind, soul, strength, um, might, heart. Let's put this, drop it right into the calendar, since that's pretty hands-on that we can understand. That faith isn't just a one hour a week endeavor. Right? And then the other 167 hours of the week are whatever you want them to be. I grew up thinking exactly that. That faith was 45 minutes on a Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 8.45, and God bless the Catholic Church. They started on time, and they ended on time. But I remember literally walking out the church, doing my Catholic genuflecting thing and the holy water thing, and by God, I'll see you next week. And that was my routine. And it kind of explains, looking back at it, how my faith really made no difference in my life back then. But let's look closely again at verse 7. When Isaiah says, Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Now the them is looking back to all the, the stuff previous, the ordinances and the laws and the statutes and all that legalese kind of stuff. Let me expand that idea of when you're at home and when you're away. Well, that's pretty much any time. Because you're either at home or you're away. There's not really a third hidden option in there. Right? When you lie down and when you are awake, or when you stand up, there's, that pretty much covers a lot of our life. There's not a lot of, okay, I'm not lying down, I'm not up, you know, I'm not spending a significant amount of time in that third option, whatever it is. Faith. And the abundant life of it isn't something that's limited to just a certain window of time, and that's it. Or a certain place, and that's it. As though we can only experience faith inside of these four walls because it happens to be known as a church. But, and let me disclaimer this to say this is not a giving people a free pass excuse to, oh, well, I'm going to do church out 
away, and, you know, because there is value in, a unique value in worshiping the community and together in, in a, a place. And so I, I realize I'm saying that to the, preaching that to the choir here, since you guys are here. But we can experience the blessings of our faith. Walking down the canal trail. Um, viewing the scenery as we're bombing down the throughway. Hopefully safely and paying attention to everything that's around us. Including, yes, okay, we can take in the scenery. Sometimes ordering a cup of coffee. If we're willing to look for it. So this week, here's my challenge. Do just that. Maybe even make a game of it if that helps motivate the idea. Um, maybe I'll have to remind this for my kids because they'd love to, to be on this idea um, when they come back up. But all right, like what's the most unique, out-of-the-box place that you see God show up this week? We often... The, the Mag 5 like to tie the idea of God's awesomeness together with experiences of God's creation. You know, maybe we're, we see a sunset and we're like, man, the, the way God can use color. Or we're out at the, the lake and just experiencing awesomeness. Or we're you know, seeing the, the colors of autumn or yes, okay, maybe I'll even admit sometimes the snowfall. And we're just like, Wow. God holds all this together. God offers all of this together for us. God built seasons into life and, and all this, and, and God somehow keeps it together and allows us to experience life in it. If we go into this new year looking for faith in 360 degrees, right? not just one hour a week on Sunday morning here in these four walls, not just in only nine verses of the Bible to the exclusion of everything else, but in a 360 degree kind of way. Imagine how the hope and the life that we can get, even in those most out of the box times that we need it, that we need God to show up, to speak. To breathe life. On a 360 degree faith, you know what? He will. Let's pray together. Lord, we worship you for being a God so much bigger than we could have possibly created if we tried. Help us to see you offering us life. Even in these parts that we think, how is this going to connect? Help us in all that to, to see who you are, to experience the wonder of who you are and offer you praise. All this we pray in your name. Amen.